There's something that happens this time of year, to some of us, to me. Surrounded by sights and sounds that tell me to celebrate, it's the most wonderful time of year. But in my heart, it's just winter. It's like the isolation you feel when you're playing hide and seek, and no one ever finds you, and you're not even sure if they're still looking. I long for God. I long to know what it's like to feel his presence, to feel joy, to feel hope. But what if this path is more than how I feel? What if it's not about being forgotten, but it's about being found? What if the way back to joy and hope is actually seeking me out? What if it's closer than I think? I love the video, but I hate the snow. No, thank you. Would you join me in standing as we read the word of the Lord today? We'll be in Isaiah chapter 64, and we will read all 12 verses together. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when the fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, nor ear has perceived, nor eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come, to do, you come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then shall we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, your sins sweep us away. No one calls in your name or strives to lay a hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. You are the clay, you are the potter. Or we are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned with fire. And all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The definition of nostalgia is to go back. 
Well, that's the etymology of it, really. To go back is what it literally means. The definition is something like this. It's a wistful or excessively sentimental yearning to return to some past period period or irrevocable condition. Nostalgia. We all have nostalgia, though, don't we? This time of the year is ripe for nostalgia. Many of us are bathing in nostalgia. I can tell you one thing that I'm nostalgic about, and that is particularly a season of my childhood when my dad was stationed in Boston, Massachusetts. We lived on what was called the South Weymouth Naval Air Station. And it was an old, uh, uh, there's a picture of it right there. It was an old World War II training field for the U.S. Navy just south of Boston on the South Shore, that piece of building right there was the hangar that was front and center uh, for the airfield. In fact, I have a funny story about that hangar. Uh, You weren't supposed to go in there even if you lived on the station, right? This is where they put top secret stuff. And uh, my grandfather, my grandpa Brooks, used to come and act like he was a big shot because no one asked him questions in spite of the fact that you couldn't get to my house without having a, a, a member of the military escort you on to the base. And so my dad, uh, my dad was just a, you know, mid-level Coast Guard person living on this base. And my grandpa didn't want to have to wait for him to come all the way down to the front in order to let him in. So my grandfather was from Connecticut. At the time, there was a representative in the U.S. Congress whose last name was Brooks. Uh, He became famous about 10 years ago by Barbara Walter saying that she had had an affair with him. He was African-American. My grandfather was not African-American. But he would come up to the gate, not wanting to wait on my dad, and say, hello, I'm Senator Brooks from Connecticut. There was no Senator Brooks from Connecticut. There was a representative. And they would just let him on time after time, just taking his word for it. He figured he'd had enough power that he would head to this hangar one day with his camera. And he walked right in because no one stopped him. And he started taking pictures of all of the planes in the hangar. That's when they had enough of him. He was momentarily detained and his camera taken from him and told to go away. It was great to live on the Naval Air Station. Um, The Blue Angels would come and practice. In fact, there was an air show every year. And the Blue Angels would come and they they would do their practice for the year right in my backyard. We would walk into the yard our house was in just walked up and there were the blue angels flying and practicing right over us. It was a wild, exciting childhood where there was always something happening. And by the time I lived there in the 1980s, uh, World War II had long been over. The Cold War demanded a different sort of warfare. And so the air station was mostly defunct. And what was happening was no longer were soldiers being trained there or housed there, as happened in World War II. I got an old picture uh, of what it looked like in its heyday. But by the time I lived there, it was mostly just uh, servicemen with children having a housing situation so that they could work in the expensive area of Boston. So everywhere I went, there were kids. There were kids everywhere. We played all the time. The yard was massive. We had woods in the front and the back. We played all sorts of games of hunt and rescue and baseball in the front. We, uh, I have so many memories of what it was like to have kids everywhere and the doors always open. Well, one particular memory I have is... Uh, 
there were two rocks out in the front yard. And by front yard, the front yard was shared by about 13 or 14 different units of families. And there were two rocks. One was kind of small, and the other was massive. It was just giant. And kids would climb up to the top of it, and they would slide down it. It was so big. And it was, it was terrifying as well, because it was so much bigger than us. And I remember my sister. My sister's here one day. One day she climbed and tried to go off the wrong way, and she broke her arm. This was a treacherous mountain of a rock. And so I have all these memories of childhood. If you grew up somewhere where you don't live now, do you ever go back with nostalgia in your head to where your parents are or where you grew up, remembering it one way and finding that it looks very different than you remember it? Do any of you have that experience? I brought my lovely brand new wife to South Weymouth right after our wedding. And I was telling her all the stories of my childhood. It was laced with nostalgia that was probably, at this point, half true. Just my memory was so big. And I particularly remember walking to this treacherous mountain of a rock to show her where my sister had broke her arm and where all of her adventures had begun. And I walked up to this rock, which was still in place. The actual barracks where we lived had been torn down. But the rock was still in place, and I walked up to it, now almost 20 years old, and I was taller than the rock. This rock was not a mountain at all. I was just little. And I began to realize in that moment that the perspective of childhood could really color the way you remember and see things. And you long for things to be a certain way. You want that dangerous rock that took out your sister to be a mountain. And when it now comes up to about your sternum, you realize that perspective and past really has a way of changing with time. Well, I mentioned that the place that I lived had been torn down. It's been systematically demolished one by one over the last 20 or 30 years. This is that glorious hangar from the first picture. In the mid-90s, the entire base was decommissioned and everything torn down. And so they sold it to a housing development place called Southfield, and they're putting in high-end houses because that's what's in demand in the South Shore of Boston. And so they began tearing down the hangar. This hangar, I believe, if I understand, its last act of glory was working as a soundstage for the female Ghostbusters movie before it was torn down. Uh, and so, so the hangar is torn down. Check out this next picture as well. And it's probably kind of hard for you to see. Hopefully online you could see it. But this was a once glorious base. You could see where the airfield is. But towards the north part of this, the top part of this, they're starting to put in turf soccer fields. To the west part of it, you can see high-end shopping centers being put in. And the last time I visited this place, just a mere two or three years ago, I was blown away in the fact that part of it is so uncontrolled now that I took my car out onto the place that the Blue Angels used to drive in order to take off. You can just go out on the runway in the tarmac now because they haven't figured out what they're going to do with this land. Now, if all of that isn't enough, if all of that isn't enough, to see your entire childhood, the moment of your biggest nostalgia, systematically taken apart one by one, I was completely taken aback in the last year to see one final blaze of glory. This picture right here is, is still there. It's the last vestige of my childhood. It's still up in the front of these high-end homes. 
And uh, this is an important picture to me because when I was seven years old, the South Shore newspaper called my parents and asked them to do a story on me. Why, why me? I, why, why was I special, right? I wasn't special. They wanted to do a story on what it was like to be a military kid. And somehow they had heard that my two closest friends, also military kids, were being transferred out of the place. And so my two closest friends were going and I was being left behind. And so they placed the three of us right in front of this airplane and took a picture and we were the front page story of what it was like to be a military kid in the 1980s. But I saw this picture from just a couple years ago right over that same picture of this important memory of mine. Someone had gone to the last bit of buildings left, old army or old navy officer barracks for single gentlemen and set them on fire. Watch this picture, or watch this video real fast of the news story. Now, I'd never lived in that building, but I remember that building. It was the last piece of the child, my childhood, the way that it was, and someone just lit it on fire. And you get this video of watching essentially what feels like your childhood burn. Maybe some of you have lived through a house fire before. Maybe some of you have had the trauma of your parents selling your childhood home. Maybe you've experienced something that was meaningful to you from your childhood that just is gone, out of your hands, you can't go back. Or when you do go back, the memories are so painful that you have to look away. This is the situation that we find ourselves in this book of Isaiah that we read from today. I Isaiah is generally understood to be written in two different times, before and after exile. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah is this prophetic word warning about what may happen and, and also a promise that begins to weave its way through of this concept of Messiah. The, the second half, uh, from chapter 40 to the end, uh, focuses more on a prophetic word to a people who have returned from exile. And as we read this text, you hear this language of burning and fire. The, they have come back to their land, and they found it decimated by Babylon. In the time that they had been away... Most likely what got them through was a hope and a yearning to go back, to see the temple once more, to live in their city again, 
to find their house, their home, their family, their relatives, to have a pace of life and a rhythm of meaning that was recognizable to them rather than dictated by a foreign land. You can imagine in the stories that you know about the exile, how they may have thought. Daniel in jail begging for vegetables so he doesn't have to eat what's unclean. Because back in Jerusalem, this isn't a problem. You can imagine Nebuchadnezzar building his big giant statue and asking all of the people to bow down and worship it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trembling in saying no, that they would not worship this idol. And being frustrated because back in Jerusalem, this is not a problem. You can imagine then when they're pushed off to the fiery furnace for being faithful to God, they may have thought to themselves, back in Jerusalem, this isn't a problem. Daniel being undercut by his fellow power brokers and equal partners in the kingdom so that the law of the land changes and he gets thrown in a pit with a lion. You could imagine as Daniel thuds on the ground, he thinks, this is not a problem back in Jerusalem. When Nehemiah hears about the struggles, the poverty, and the hurt, and the broken wall, and he goes to the king and tells him about it, he begins to realize the problem in Jerusalem, but he learns to go, yearns to go back. When they've gotten through the difficult moments of exile, they did so yearning for a past. Jerusalem, the temple, their religion, their way of life, their pace of doing things. They yearned and they yearned and they yearned for a past that no longer exists. They've gone back to Jerusalem and they found it in rubble, decimated. Their childhood, their nostalgia, their past, what they thought they were heading to in order to bring them salvation and hope is broken and torn to the ground. And so we get this word in Isaiah chapter 64. And it starts with what you might expect a desperate person to pray. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Rend meaning tear. Tear it open and come down here. Stand on our side. Defend us against the people who have wronged us. Everything we have worked for, yearned for, longed for, and hoped for is now ash and dust. We have waited and waited and waited for redemption. And there's nothing but hard work in front of us. Why don't you, God, come down here and fix it? Why don't you come and deal with the Persians who've put us in this situation? Why don't you fight on our behalf? You showed our forefathers that you were willing to come down and speak to them. Why won't you come down and speak for us? Can you hear the anger in their voice? I've prayed this prayer before. I deserve better than this. Why am I in this situation? I've done it all right. I've chosen the righteous path. Why would you make my life difficult when you could just come on down here and fix it for me? Have you ever prayed that prayer before? 
It's a familiar prayer. But right in the middle of this text, the tone changes for just one moment. It's almost as if the author realizes that maybe, just maybe, the situation and the problems that they find themselves in might be a little bit their fault as well. You see, when we're in the midst of trouble, we're so good at assigning blame. To looking at the world around us and saying, they're wrong, they're wrong, they don't have it right, they're a problem, they're sinners, they're sinners, why are they all winning and my situation stinks? God, come and fix this for me. I deserve better than this. Just as soon as they start talking like that, their heart changes just a little bit. Realize that maybe, just maybe, maybe, just maybe, that the sin that they recognize sent them into exile, that maybe their punishment is continuing by coming back to the place that they didn't appreciate the first time around, is in rubble. When they call upon the name of God to come on down, it occurs to them that maybe they'd better be in good standing when God gets here with God. Because if God is going to come on down here and he's going to take out the people who are in sin and make right the world, maybe maybe we ought to make sure that we're on the repentant side of the ledger when God comes down here. And so the prayer changes tone very much in the middle. Things like All of us have become like one who is unclean and our righteous acts are like filthy rags. No one calls in your name or strives to lay a hold on hand of you for you've hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. And then the moment of repentance happens. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. The people who are so angry and so wronged and found all of their nostalgia and hope to be a false nostalgia and hope have this moment of repentance where they give themselves back to God and say, make of us what you will. I'm done fighting the battles as if I'm the righteous one. I'm done standing up for myself as if I always get it right. When you come down, when you answer our prayer, Come as a potter and make me as you would have me. Verse 9 continues, do not be angry beyond measure. Do not remember our sins forever. Look on us, we pray, for we are your people. That tone change is so unbelievably helpful for us. We live in a world of nostalgia Many of us think going back will help. Oh, if we could just have 2019 back, we didn't have to wear our masks then. Oh, if only it could be like my childhood where the kids just went out and played all of the time. Oh, if only it could be like I made that one poor financial decision. Oh, if it could only be before I made that life decision. Oh, if it could only be like we are a nostalgic people. And yet God is a God who is present in our past, but calls us into his future. 
He doesn't want us to be regressive. Sometimes we come upon a rubble of that which we thought was our hope. That doesn't mean that God isn't there, but it does mean that God can work on us in the midst of difficult circumstances. It does mean that in times where we thought this place, this thing, this activity, this return would be our salvation, that we should instead look upon the God who is our salvation, who's calling us into his future, not asking us to be regressive, not asking us to mourn what we have lost, but to be a people who anticipate what is coming. That's what Advent is about. This season that we celebrate, four Sundays leading into Christmas, preparing ourselves for the coming King. Advent is this time of in-between. It's the dash in between two times. We celebrate the baby who came, born of a virgin, to save the people from their sins. But we also, again, remember that waiting that we might be an active waiter for the Christ who is coming as king, who will return and make all things right in this world. Advent means arrival or appearance. It's the tension of the appearance of Christ once and the waiting for him to come again. So this season is a good season for us to enter into, to be a people of preparation, of hope, a people who are waiting actively, who are patient but yearning, who are looking to God once more and saying, come Lord Jesus, come into this mess. It's all in rubble. This is not what we intended. This world as it is is not what we've hoped for and we've found time and time again that it disappoints us. And the things that we look forward to or expect or hope will bring us joy and salvation can so often let us down. But you, oh God, do not let us down. You will make all things right. You help us realize that the things we put our hope in in this world is nothing compared to the Son who comes again as conquering King. And so this text leaves us in our own place of tension, a tension that matches the tension of Advent. It's a tension between yearning for God to come and make a difference in our world now, to find us in the brokenness of our situation and saying, God, make it right, and also in the tension of leaning on a grace that hasn't yet been revealed that it may just be that us looking back, seeing the brokenness of our world and thinking it used to be better may be half as good as looking forward to when it will all be made right, finally and completely. This is why we wait. And so today as we close, I want to read to you uh, an old hymn from the 1700s written by Charles Wesley that speaks to this tension and this hope and this waiting. The song is called, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending, and there's a lot of words in it from 18th century England that we may not use, but hopefully you can hear the heart of this and receive it as a prayer as we hope for our coming King. Lo, He comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain, thousand, thousand saints attending, 
swell the triumph of his train. Alleluia, alleluia. God appears on earth to reign. Every eye shall now behold him, robed in dreadful majesty. Those who set it not and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree. Deeply, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. Every island, sea, and mountain, heaven and earth shall flee away. All who hate him must confound it. Hear the trump proclaim the day. Come to judgment. Come to judgment. Come to judgment. Come away. Now redemption long expected. See in solemn pomp appear. All his saints by men rejected. Now shall meet him in the air. Alleluia. Alleluia. See the day of God appear. Yea, amen, let all adore thee. High on thine eternal throne. Savior, take the power and glory. Claim the kingdom for thine own. O come quickly. O come quickly. Alleluia. Come, Lord, come. As we sing this last song, I invite you. Yearn for the coming of Christ but do so actively. And to actively wait, yearn for the the coming of Christ is not to expect that it's for me, but to continually say in this time of waiting, oh God, you are the potter, not me. You are the potter. I am the clay. Would you join me in standing as we sing this final song?